Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series this week, Power in Weakness, with a message entitled, Jars of Clay. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Kent Hughes tells the story of an interaction that someone once had with St. Francis of Assisi. Apparently, the man in question had asked Francis how he was able to accomplish so much, and Francis had replied, this may be why. The Lord looked down from heaven and said, where can I find the weakest, littlest man on the earth? And then he saw me and said, I found him, and he won't be proud of it. He'll see that I'm only using him because of his insignificance. You know, when I read that, I thought of the man who is considered the father of modern-day missions, William Carey, great missionary to India, a man whose accomplishments are so startling and so extraordinary. You know, it was at a meal to which he had been invited that a British military man once said to him, I understand you're only a shoemaker. And that was said, you know, in the most condescending manner possible. It was, it was an attempt to put Carey into his place. And Carey responded by saying that, no, 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 he was not a shoemaker. He had only been a cobbler. In other words, I didn't make shoes. I only repaired the old ones. I mean, to call me a shoemaker is to insinuate that I have, you know, an exalted status, and I actually don't. The great apostle Paul, the man who wrote nearly one-third of the New Testament, the man who is not just the father of modern-day missions, but the father of all Christian missions, the man who laid the foundation for the church of Jesus among the Gentiles, the man whose raw courage forged a path for the global witness of the gospel. This man saw himself no more than a broken-down clay pot. So let's read today's text, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be magnified in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. Now, the point of what Paul is saying is that his weakness is on display. And furthermore, the more his weakness is being displayed, the more Christ's power is coming into focus. And I know that for many of us, that seems counterintuitive. I mean, from our perspective, I mean, the way to show God's power is through human competency and achievement. So the great preacher or the great orator showcases the glory of God. The brilliant scholar helps the world to see that, that you can be both a competent scholar and a Christian at the same time. The businessman whose business prowess employs many people and who testifies that he thinks that Jesus is greater than money, or let's say the sports star who's at the very top of the game and testifies to Christ, well, I think you get it. See, what Paul says seems counterintuitive. And furthermore, I mean, think about Paul himself. I mean, you know, he was intellectually brilliant, and also he had been educated under Gamaliel. He was one of the finest rabbis ever. It's like having a Harvard education. And to be clear, let's say at the outset, 
that a great many people who have been highly competent and they have skills the world recognizes as highly prized, it is those people who have been greatly used by God. And Paul's words about treasures in jars of clay shouldn't lead any Christian not to seek excellence in in every field of endeavor. I've said it before, and I think it's very appropriate to say it now. We should encourage our young people to excel in every field of human endeavor. We should pray that there are many Christian scientists and Christian journalists and Christian university profs and lawyers and teachers and influencers of many. It's because Proverbs 22 verse 29 says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. No, no. We should seek to be the best we can be, and in that, to give glory to God and not to be shy of the truth that Jesus is Lord of all and that he has come to save lost men and women. Now, there's something in Paul's statement that's a missing ingredient in everything that I've just said. God's power is made ever more clear when it shines out of human weakness and not human strength. So let's begin with verse 7, which really states the theme of this passage. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And there's actually a double contrast here. Notice the first one. It's the contrast between a treasure and the clay jars that hold the treasure. See, the treasure is the gospel, or as Paul has said back in verse 6, he talks about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has glorified himself in his son Jesus, both in his life and in his death. That's the gospel. That's the priceless treasure. It's what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 13 when he spoke about a treasure that was hidden in a field for which a man or woman will gladly sell everything he or she has. It's the greatest treasure that has ever been given to this earth. This is the treasure of which if if a man were to trade that treasure for all the wealth of the universe, that man or woman would be scorned as a fool. Here's the contrast. This treasure is housed in jars of clay. Now, for us in our culture today, I mean, that's going to require an explanation. You know, in the ancient world, clay jars, I mean, they were everywhere. And they were used to transport liquids, everything from water to wine, but they also held grain. They were used for cooking. They stored almost everything. You know, those of you who are even familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll know they were found in clay jars. They were used to house scripture and other writings. And furthermore, there's, there's hardly an archaeological site from the ancient world anywhere where clay pots and clay jars are, are just everywhere. You know, they're either intact or they're broken into tiny bits. They're just all over the place. And in the ancient world, those jars, they were not only everywhere, they were cheap, but they were also fragile. So if you want a contemporary example of that, I mean, you might think of single-use products. I mean, things like wrapping or packaging or cardboard boxes, anything like that. And that's the contrast, jars of clay that house the gospel. The emphasis isn't on the packaging. It's what the packaging holds. So here's the question. I mean, what is Paul referring to when he makes this contrast? So I think that from the context of the passage, it's not that Paul thinks he's an incompetent man who just happened to have been entrusted with the gospel. I don't think it's that at all. I mean, after all, you can look back in 1 Corinthians, and there Paul will refer to himself as a master builder. You know, instead, judging from the rest of this passage, as well as the wider context, see, I think Paul is speaking about his own fragile body. 
I think he's, he's referring to all the weaknesses that some of his detractors saw in him. They said he was unimpressive when face-to-face, and Paul has already readily acknowledged that he was not the message. I'm a cracked clay pot, he says. I house, however, a glorious gospel. So that's the first contrast. And then the second one, verse 7, it's the contrast between the extraordinary power that comes from God in contrast to the power that comes from Paul. And here Paul sees something of the wisdom of God. God has so designed it that the best ministers of the gospel will always be those who are incapable of taking credit for the gospel's power. Look, it wasn't Moses who parted the Red Sea. I mean, he could have struck his rod over that body of water for the rest of his life. Nothing would have happened. I hope you understand what I'm saying. God has so designed the gospel so that it's unmistakable to anyone who bothers to take a second look that power is coming from God. And God won't share the credit for the gospel's success with Paul. And just in case you missed that, he won't share credit for the gospel's success with you either. But if it's not a matter of incompetence, then what is it? And that's to say, we've made the point that Paul did have skills. He did have a very impressive mind. He did have, in spite of what others said about him, he did have the ability to communicate very well. And he had a raw courage. He had an unwillingness to quit. He would have made Winston Churchill look like a quitter. But God was determined that the gospel would go forward in such a way that Paul could never take credit for it. How does that work? The answer takes us back to the first contrast. God seems determined to highlight the weaknesses of his servants. He showcases their lack and their failures and their suffering. And once he does that, his servants will then themselves highlight their own weaknesses as well. And as they do, the extraordinary power will become plain. God will showcase that his ministers will be, in the eyes of the world, people of no account. Paul himself will seem unimpressive. And if God's servants recognize that, all is well. Let's get back to William Carey, a cobbler who translated the Bible into eight different Indian languages and parts of it into 29 other languages. How in the world does a cobbler do that? Haha, <laughs> that's the secret of a clay jar housing a priceless treasure. The past number of years back to the Bible Canada has been blessed to offer a unique Israel experience, a journey to the Holy Land under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld discovering first-hand locations across Israel so prominent in the Bible. On every occasion, those in attendance have agreed it was a spiritual experience of a lifetime. Now's the time to plan ahead. In April of 2021, Back to the Bible Canada is offering our next Israel experience, and we want you to attend. Join an intimate group of brothers and sisters journeying across Israel under the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and experience events and activities that will include Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and hosted by the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Plan to attend. Take advantage of having plenty of notice and register today. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
verses 8 and 9, Paul gives a series of four contrasts that showcase how God is determined to showcase power. But before we reread our text, let me highlight that this, this isn't the first time that Paul is going to speak this way. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 4, 11 to 13, listen to Paul. He writes, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. See, I wonder what it must be like to minister the gospel in a culture where ministers of the gospel are honored. You know, I have a memory of a number of years ago, a newspaper article, two pages long in the major paper in our province, highlighted myself and my ministry. And what was fascinating was not that it was negative, it's just inaccurate in so many ways. But what was also fascinating is that in the blogs, I mean, I would say the response was vitriolic. I mean, people roundly hated me. But there are places in the world, I mean, especially in cities in the southern U.S., where a successful pastor is honored. And all of that has far more to do not with the faithfulness or the unfaithfulness of a pastor. It has to do with the wider culture's acceptance of the gospel. Now, in the case of Paul, when he brought the gospel into Asia and then into Europe, the response to his preaching was often so venomous and hateful. I mean, you got to wonder. I mean, what accounts for such a violent and and poisonous response to the preaching of Jesus? We'd wonder that until we see what God is doing. God is determined in his ministers that they would be clay pots so that no one would ever imagine the power comes from them. And so in Paul's case, the wider culture just assumes that he's the scum of the earth, and yet the gospel is growing and winning more and more people. So what in the world accounts for that? Well, we know for certain it's not Paul's popularity. All right, let's go now to our verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Now, you should have noticed that Paul's giving us four contrasts. Let's look at each one of them carefully. First, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed. So, the basic meaning of affliction is that Paul is saying that he bears the pressures of the culture around him. So, in every way, he's feeling it. He feels it physically in his body. He feels it mentally. He feels it socially. No one's going to invite Paul to a social gathering of polite cultural leaders. Instead, Paul says, you know, it happens in every way. I'm being squeezed out. He's been driven into a narrow place. There's no place for him in the wider culture. And yet, in spite of the fact that he's being squeezed, he's not crushed. So here's the second contrast. He's perplexed, but not driven to despair. And it's something we actually can't see in our English translation, but there's actually a word play in the Greek. I am, says Paul, aparumenoi, but not ex aparumenoi. So you see, it's the same word. It's a word play. And Greek scholars suggest we might translate it as we're perplexed, but we're not thoroughly perplexed. I'm constantly discouraged by what's happening, but I'm not driven to despair. Third contrast. I'm persecuted, but not forsaken or abandoned. See, Paul knows that he's become like a man who's a hunted fugitive. And we do know that fugitives are usually alone. But, says Paul, I'm not alone. You know, Paul might have been thinking about Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. 
Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Or maybe Paul's thinking of Jesus' words, Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I may be alone, but I'm not alone. And then the fourth contrast, I'm struck down but not destroyed. It's, it's a fascinating word, that word struck down. You know, in the Greek, it's a technical term. It, it referred to a wrestler who would throw his opponent onto the floor. And Paul says, you know, I've been in a great contest for the gospel, and I got body slammed down onto the mat. You'd think that was the end of the match. But lo and behold, I was not destroyed at all. Now, one more thing is important before we go on. All four of those contrasts, or the eight descriptors, well, they're all participles, and all eight participles are in the passive voice. That is, Paul saying, I didn't do this. It was done to me. I was body slammed. I was struck down. Everything, both the harm that was done to him and the sustaining grace that was done to him was done to him. He was merely a clay jar on whom others were acting. Now, having described himself as a clay jar, he's a container for the gospel so that no one would ever think that the power came from him, Paul now is ready to make his summary statement in verses 10 and 11. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You're going to notice, of course, that there are two themes in those verses. Death, then life. Notice, would you, that on the death side of the equation, Paul's saying that he always carries in his own body the death of Jesus. It's a constant experience. It, you know, it fascinates me that, that this text, that the word for death is not the, the normal Greek word. I mean, the Greeks would talk about death as thanatos. But here, Paul uses the word necrosis. Now, my wife, is a wound care clinician in a hospital, and, and she can tell you all about necrosis. Necrosis is the death of body tissue. It happens when there's too little blood supply to a wound so that large sections of that wound suffer from the death of tissue. That's how patients get gangrene. Now, in the Greek, necrosis describes the entire process of dying, not death itself. It's dying. It speaks of weakening, dying, even decomposition of the flesh. So keeping that in mind, it's as if Paul is saying, in my own body, I am carrying about the intense suffering and dying of my Savior. That is, at all times, in season and out of season, my own body with the scars that I bear that speaks to me of the dying of my Lord. And here's what he knows. Whenever he's been body slammed to the mat, and excluded from polite society and mocked and beaten. I mean, all that reminds him of the life that's given over to the death of Jesus. I, I feel my blood supply, he says, choking off my flesh. I feel like I'm dying with Jesus. You know, it sounds as we listen to him, it just sounds horrifying. But he says, that's not the end of the matter. I can't just speak of the dying of my Lord and my death in him. I, I, I got to also speak about his life. It's because I can't stop at the tomb of Jesus without noticing the tomb's empty. 
power of God came. Jesus stepped victoriously out of that tomb. And so Paul speaks of the the life of Jesus manifested in his body right alongside of his death. It's fascinating, this contrast. And so this, especially in the last part of verse 11, the life of Jesus, says Paul, is manifested in his mortal flesh. The flesh is mortal, but the life is indestructible. That then is exactly what Paul meant when he said he had a treasure in jars of clay. God's determined that the power of the gospel should never be confused with the power of human strength. The gospel goes forward not because of human ingenuity or even favorable conditions or cultures that welcome it. It doesn't go that way. The treasure will come in clay pots. It comes in human weaknesses, human beings at the very edge of things where all ability falters. And with that, we come to verse 12, the point of application. So death is at work in us, but life in you. That's surprising. I thought Paul would have said, so death is at work in us, so that life can also be at work in us. But if we thought that, we got the wrong application, you see. Paul doesn't say that. He says, listen carefully. You got the suffering of the gospel. He says, you were saved by the suffering of our Lord Jesus and by the suffering of the missionaries who sent the gospel to you through their suffering. Outside of such suffering, you would never have received the life of the resurrection, and that's the application. Would you thank God for the suffering of Paul? Yes, Christ suffered so that you would be saved, but Paul suffered so that the message would come to you. God crushed him so that you would have life. God also crushed him so that you would never assume that Paul is the author of the gospel. No, no, no. He's a clay jar through whom the treasure came. That's the application. Jars of clay, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. That's how the gospel came to you. Give thanks to God. For he has arranged it so that you would never assume it's anything other than what it is. It is a declaration of the power of God. John, let's deviate from our regular routine a little bit because, you know, we've we've been privileged to go to India and do ministry several times. and, And I'm just wondering what you think William Carey's maybe one or two most significant attributes made him such a great missionary might have been. Yeah, I mean, I think, Ben, uh, you know, because we mentioned William Carey in, in, in my message, and I know this. There is a humility about the man that is extraordinary. Uh, but there's also, you know, this passion around Scripture and how important it is for people to hear that and to get everything that he had to make sure that Scripture became known. Uh, there are other things as well, but I know that humility and a confidence in Scripture surely is at the heart of who he is. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in 2 Corinthians, Power in Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. One way we want to walk with you in your Bible study is to provide helpful tools and resources. This month, as our free gift, we'd like to send you a unique Back to the Bible Canada Bible Note Caddy. Some might think this is a bit old school, but this small journal comes with aids to help you take important notes, highlight important verses or sections of study, and it comes with a limited Back to the Bible Canada pen. These are limited in number, but if this is a tool you'll find helpful, request your free Bible Note Caddy today. And just a reminder, we're praying for you. 
And we're also blessed to know ministry friends from across the country are also praying for this ministry. What an encouragement. So call us today to request your free Bible note, Caddy, or send in your gift to support the Bible teaching ministries of Back to the Bible Canada at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.